Please take your Bibles and let's return to the book of Leviticus. We'll be looking at chapter 22. Uh, Just turn it down just a bit, Tony. Um, Leviticus chapter 22 this morning. And uh, as we have been with these longer chapters, we're going to take them piece by piece as we make our way through. We are continuing a section of Leviticus that again pertains to regulations regarding the rights of worship and especially regulations that are directed to the priests. Many of these regulations, especially in the first nine verses of this chapter, we have already seen before. Uh, These are regulations which are given in different forms to the people of God regarding how they approach God in worship at the tabernacle. But here, these are directed specifically to the priests, and in this passage, we are not only receiving instructions for those who worship the Lord, but these are standing instructions for those who lead in worship, and it provides a beautiful picture of the way in which God will bring about the forgiveness of our sins. We will see this as we work our way through this chapter. I want to look at this passage in essentially three parts. If you look at Leviticus chapter 22 in the first nine verses, you'll note that everything in those verses pertains to specific prohibitions for the priestly order as they approach the worship of God. Now, we'll come back in a moment and we'll read through this. This deals with ceremonial uncleanness, uh, not coming before the Lord in the tabernacle in worship in a state of uncleanness by whatever reason that uncleanness is caused. That's the first thing that we're going to see. Secondly, in verses 10 through 16, we're going to see regulations that pertain to the food which is devoted to the priesthood and who can eat it. And we especially find here a prohibition against anyone but the priests and those who were properly part of the priest's family partaking in these holy food gifts which have been brought by the people of God to the tabernacle and those portions then that are given to the priest afterward for the priest and for the priest's family. In the third section of the chapter, in verses 17 through 33, we'll see what what, what pertains to the demand in regard to perfect animal sacrifices. Over and over in this section, there is repeated this requirement that only perfect animals can be brought for the sacrifice. We've actually seen this throughout Leviticus over and over and over again. They're being repeated here in the context of God's command to the priests about the proper ceremonies in the worship of God which are to take place in the tabernacle. Now, let's make our way through this chapter together. First reading verses 1 through 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Aaron and his sons to be careful with the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so as to not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, 
If any man among all your descendants throughout your generations approaches the holy gifts which the sons of Israel dedicate to the Lord, while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from before me. I am the Lord. No man of the descendants of Aaron who is a leper or who has a discharge may eat of the holy gifts until he is clean. And if one touches anything made unclean by a corpse or if a man has a seminal emission or if a man touches any teeming things by which he is made unclean or a man by whom he is made unclean, whatever his uncleanness, a person who touches any shall be unclean until evening and shall not eat of the holy gifts unless he has bathed his body in water. But when the sun sets, he will be clean, and afterward he shall eat of the holy gifts, for it is his food. He shall not eat an animal which dies or is torn by beasts, becoming unclean by it. I am the Lord. They shall therefore keep my charge, so that they will not bear sin because of it, and die thereby because they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them." So we find here prohibitions for the priests. They were not to come into the precincts of the tabernacle. They were not to engage in the rites of worship. They were not to partake of the holy food set apart for the priests as a part of the sacrificial system when they were in a state of uncleanness. And what we, re what we see repeated are some of the ceremonial pro prohibitions regarding uncleanness that we've already seen before. The book of Leviticus, as you've picked up by now, is a pretty repetitious book. And yet, there are always little changes. There are differences as these regulations are being uh, set forth. The main point, though, by now, should be very clear. God is to be approached in holiness and with care, and that care is to be shown by strict adherence to the ceremonial rites and actions and statuses. Uh, that is, if a priest is ceremonially unclean because of one of these various things which have been listed here in what we've just read, he is thereby unfit to enter into the leading of tabernacle worship or to participate in the eating of the holy food which has been set apart for the priests. And this shouldn't be difficult for us to understand by now. Throughout Leviticus, we've repeatedly seen that one of the priests' main jobs is to distinguish between clean and unclean. Now, why is the priest to make these distinctions? The answer is because the ceremonial status of cleanness and uncleanness is tied to the worship of the Lord so that those who are clean are able to come into the worship of the Lord and to participate, and those who are not clean are unable to do so. It's part of the way that God has given so that there could be an illustration. It's a way of illustrating to the people of God the importance of their distinctness uh, 
from the nations around them. Their distinctness from the behavior and the attitudes and the actions of the nations around them. They are not to be sucked into the lifestyle of the world, into the manner of living and of the, the, the manner of the unbelieving cultures around them. Just as our brother was talking to us this morning about idolatry. This is so key, of course, as God is bringing His people into the land. He warns them over and over and over again, and over and over and over again, they ignore Him. And they go after the gods of the people the gods of the nations, until God in His grace brings judgment upon them. If the priest is to be careful in distinguishing between what is clean and unclean in the people pertaining to whether they can come to the Lord, isn't it doubly important that the priests themselves maintain their cleanliness? observe those statutes regarding the clean and the unclean. It would be the height of hypocrisy if their main job is to determine whether the people of God have met the standard God requires for approaching Him and participating in tabernacle worship. It would be the height of hypocrisy for them to administer those regulations while not observing the law for themselves. This is an ongoing issue for those whom God has raised up as leaders over His people. It is something that I live with day by day, week after week, year after year. Because every time I step into this pulpit and I open the Word of God and I say, thus saith the Lord, live like this, live like that. I know I'm not doing it as I should. There is always that nagging voice in the back of the preacher's mind, you're a hypocrite. And I am. And you need to know that. You need to understand that. Those who proclaim the truth of God are not living up to the perfection which God requires. That's why we need grace, brothers and sisters. Not only for salvation, but for service as well. And so in this passage, it's being stressed that the priests themselves must, as they can live out that very distinction that God has called them to enforce upon the people. And they're able to live out these distinctions because these are external. It's much easier to live out externals. You have your list. Right? Right? Don't do this, don't do, and do this, and don't do that. And if it was only that easy... We keep it by our bed. Right? We get our pajamas on. We're getting into bed at night. We can go over our list. All right, did that, did that, did that. I didn't do that, didn't do that, didn't do it. We're good to go. The heart is more complicated than that. 
but in God's purposes, for His plans and His desire to put forth an illustration of clean and unclean, He has stressed that the priests themselves must live out these distinctions in these external ways. It's a basic call for the priest's life, at least in these externals, to be in accordance with the priest's duties and the priest's teachings and the priest's responsibilities. And so we see this very basic reason for these rules being stressed here. The priest's own action and life must be in accordance with his calling and his duties. The same question arises from this passage that we asked last week. Aren't some of these restrictions a little bit harsh? Don't they seem somewhat unfair? Take a person, for instance, with a skin disease or even leprosy, for example. That person hasn't asked for that disease. Isn't it a little bit harsh for the Lord to keep that person from participating in the tabernacle worship of the living God because having that disease, they are in a state of uncleanness that at least perhaps in short term cannot be cured, and in some cases in the long term cannot be cured. Once again, we are reminded that our priorities are not God's priorities. God's priority is His own glory. That which comes before God in worship must reflect who God is. And so anything that represents something less than wholeness, less than fullness, less than perfection, is excluded by the ceremonial law from participation in tabernacle worship. And this is all intended to make a very clear point, that if we are going to commune with God, we must be like Him. Be holy as I am holy. But still, our hearts go out to these people who through no fault of their own are excluded from participation in that worship. And I think it's right that we feel that way. It's right to feel that there is something incomplete about this. There is something that needs to be remedied. And there is a remedy we find that remedy in the New Testament. His name is Jesus. The New Testament shows that Lord Jesus Christ reaching out precisely to those who have been excluded because of ceremonially, ceremonial uncleanness. And He heals them. And He brings them into the experience of the presence of worship of the living God. And so both the Old Testament picture and the New Testament picture show us things which are true about God and important to learn. That things that we wouldn't be able to fully appreciate unless both aspects were there in the Scripture. The ceremonial requirements for perfection upon entering into the presence of the Lord are designed to illustrate that holiness communes with holiness. 
and that if we wish to fellowship with the living God, it requires that we, may be, that we be made right with Him and that we be like Him, that we be morally transformed by Him. Now, in terms of New Covenant application, let me come back to something we began to discuss last week. Though there are no ceremonial requirements for elders in the New Testament, there are many moral requirements. When we look at 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, we see no ceremonial requirements, but we find many moral requirements. And this is a great example of how the New Testament takes a principle that was illustrated in the ceremonial law but makes the application moral. Elders who serve the Lord and shepherd God's people are to be morally upright. They are to be holy in their family life, in their relationship with other Christians, even in regard to their reputation with those outside the church. All elders are given that same charge. They are called to the same kind of consistency as the priests of the Old Covenant. Even as the priests were to be consistent in their obedience to those ceremonial laws that they were supposed to be enforcing on other people as well, so elders in the New Testament are called to live the way that we are encouraging God's people to live. Now, we're, we're not looking for perfection here. If you're looking for perfection here, you're not going to find it. But that does not keep the New Covenant elder from exhorting the people of God to be holy. Not as I am holy, but as He is holy. So there's one application of what we find here in Leviticus chapter 22. There's a second thing I want you to see, though, and that's in verses 10 through 16. Picking up with verse 10, No layman, however, is to eat the holy gift. A sojourner with the priest or a hired man shall not eat of the holy gift, but if a priest buys a slave as his property with his money, that one may eat of it. And those who are born in his house may eat of his food. If a priest's daughter is married to a layman, she shall not eat of the offering of the gifts. But if a priest's daughter becomes a widow or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house as in her youth, she shall eat of her father's food, but no layman shall eat of it. But if a man eats a holy gift unintentionally, then he shall add to it a fifth of it and shall give the holy gift to the priest. They shall not profane the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they offer to the Lord, and so cause them to bear punishment for guilt by eating their holy gifts. For I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So here we're seeing basically that no laymen in Israel are allowed to partake in these particular 
gifts of food, which are specially dedicated to the priests. And the whole purpose of this section is to define who is a part of the priest's household. Because some of these foods which are given to the priests are permitted to be shared with his household. But now we have to understand, all right, who's a part of the house? Who's a part of this family? And given what we've just read, it's not as simple as we might think. For instance, if a slave is brought into the priest's family, that person is reckoned as a member of the priest's family and therefore permitted to eat of the food which is dedicated to the priest. But if a daughter gets married, then she's no longer considered part of the priest's immediate family, his household. Now she's a part of her husband's family. They've got their own household, and so she no longer has rights to this holy food. But if she becomes a widow or her husband divorces her and she comes back into her father's household, well, now she's a part of that family again and she has privileges in regard to eating this food. So what is all of this about? Why can only the priest's family eat this holy food? Why is it so important to specifically define who is and who isn't a member of the priestly family. Well, once again, we're dealing with distinctions, aren't we? All of these distinctions in the ceremonial code are designed to emphasize the uniqueness, the separateness, the distinctiveness, the holiness of God over against this sinful, fallen world. And they are to show us that God is to be treated as holy. So in this case, if God has specifically dedicated certain foods only to the priest and the priest's family, then for someone outside of the family to partake of those foods is to blur the distinction that God has established. And that blurring of the distinction undermines the illustration that God is bringing to bear in the ceremonial law. So that's what this strange section is about. Defining who can and who can't partake of that food dedicated to the priests because it is important to observe the proper partaking of that food in order to keep the distinction that God has made Himself in the ceremonial law because the ceremonial law is painting a picture. Once again, this ceremonial distinction, this ritual distinction is designed to illustrate a moral principle regarding God's holiness. The ceremonial law is not a part of the eternal character of God like the moral law is. But it is a picture intended to teach us about who God is. Well, finally, if we look at verses 17 through the end of the chapter, there's another thing we need to see here. 
the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel, and say to them, Any man of the house of Israel or of the aliens in Israel who presents his offering, whether it is any of their votive or any of their freewill offerings, which they present to the Lord for a burnt offering, for you to be accepted, it must be a male without defect from the cattle, the sheep, or the goats. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it will not be accepted for you. When a man offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a special vow, or for a free will offering of the herd or of the flock, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or fractured or maimed or having a running sore or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord, nor make them an offering by fire on the altar to the Lord. In respect to an ox or a lamb which has an overgrown or stunted member, you may present it for a free will offering, but for a vow it will not be accepted. Also, anything with its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut, you shall not offer to the Lord or sacrifice in your land, nor shall you accept any such from the hand of a foreigner for offering as the food of your God. For their corruption is in them, they have a defect, and they shall not be accepted by you. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When an ox or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day on it shall be accepted as a sacrifice of an offering by fire to the Lord. But whether it is an ox or a sheep, you shall not kill both it and its young in one day. When you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it till morning. I am the Lord. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be sanctified among the sons of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Now you'll notice, again, for at least the fourth time in the book of Leviticus, we are being shown the primary motivation for holiness. I am the Lord. I sanctify you. I brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you be holy. Therefore, you observe these distinctions between the holy and the profane. Over and over again, we have seen and we continue to see this God motivation to holiness. Our God is holy, so we ought to be holy because we call Himself our God and He calls us His people. And so we are to be like Him. And that point is driven home over and over and over again throughout this wonderful book. 
But it's the first part of this section that I want to concentrate on. First part of this section basically says that the only that only perfect animals need apply for the job of being a sacrifice. In this section, it is repeatedly stressed that the animals used for sacrifice, whether they are sheep, whether they're from the herd, whether they're goats, whatever they are, they are to be perfect. And we need to ask ourselves a question. Why in the ceremonial law were perfect animals required? And there's more than one biblical answer to that question. One reason that perfect animals were required was because the animals were to represent the quality of perfection in God. Since God is perfect, what is offered to Him needs to be as close to perfect as it's possible to get. That is, the very thing that Israel was offering to God was to be reflective of the God to whom it was being offered. Secondly, and linked to that first reason, the offerings had to be perfect because the perfection of your offering represented what you thought about God. If you brought something that was less than perfect, something that was maimed or in some kind of spoiled condition that is described here in chapter 22, that says something about how you view God. It says that you have a low view of God. It says that He's not really all that important. It says you don't think He deserves the best that you can offer. And so certainly for at least those two reasons, perfect sacrifices are required in the sacrificial system. But there's yet another reason that's particularly applicable to us as New Covenant Christians. The book of Hebrews tells us that in the end, even those perfect animal sacrifices did not in and of themselves bring about the forgiveness of sin. As the author of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats can't forgive sin. It's impossible. So why then all of this emphasis on the perfect sacrifice? Well, that brings us to our Third and final and most important reason, and it is this, because those perfect sacrifices pointed to a perfect Savior. It's stressed over and over again in Hebrews, in 1 Peter, in 1 John. Over and over again, the Scripture declares that Jesus was what? A perfect, spotless, sacrifice without blemish in him there is absolutely no perfection no imperfection let's think about that for just a moment the point which the new testament makes is not that jesus was simply ritually perfect 
that he met some kind of ceremonial standard of perfection. In fact, very often, Jesus seems to be pushing the envelope in regard to ceremonial standards. But what the New Testament stresses everywhere is Jesus' moral perfection. That he was utterly unspotted in regard to his obedience to the law. That he was not only a sacrifice for sin, bearing the penalty due to us, but he was perfect in his own obedience to the law of God. So once again, we see here the ceremonial aspect of the law serving as a picture of the moral content of the law. The ceremonial perfection of the Old Testament sacrifice, uh, sacrificial animals points to the moral perfection of the only true sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was morally perfect and therefore is the only true perfect sacrifice. Theologians speak of this perfection in terms of two different kinds of righteousness. There is Christ's active righteousness and Christ's passive righteousness. His passive righteousness is that which is seen in his perfect sacrifice on the cross. But Christ also maintained an active righteousness as he lived a life of perfect obedience to the law of God. Which really, now and then, we each ought to stop and take a moment to think about. Because I can't get through a day keeping the law of God perfectly. I could probably say, not an hour. And Christ lived his entire life without one spot or blemish on his moral record. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be one of his brothers? Why can't you be more like Jesus? Not only was he fully and wholly obedient to God's moral law, he was fully obedient to something that you and I could never be fully obedient to. And that is the demands of the fulfillment of the covenant of grace. Because Philippians chapter 2 says that he was not only obedient, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. And day by day, he went into this world of sin and death and degradation and humiliation and yet was without sin. And here in Leviticus, hundreds and hundreds of years before the Lord sent His Son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, into the world, He is drawing the picture of the perfection of His Son and the fullness of salvation. That, by the way, is just one reason why we can never be satisfied 
with any view that says that Jesus is a Savior, one among many. No. He is unique. He is the Savior. No one else has ever done what He has done. He is the only perfect sacrifice. And because of what He alone has done, we must trust only in Him. In no one else and in nothing else. But all who do fully trust in Him can be assured that He is able to save you to the uttermost. The uniqueness of His perfect life and death guarantee the efficacy of His perfect redemption. And so if you're sitting here this morning, recognize the reality, recognize the truth First, the truth about who you are. You are not perfect. You have not kept the law. You have all kinds of spots and blemishes. And as a result, because of who we are and what we have done, we are born into this world under the wrath of God. But... There is one who can deal with that imperfection. There is one who can deal with that sin because he lived a spotless and holy life, a perfect life. And then having lived that perfect life, he gave himself in a perfect death, taking upon himself the wrath of God that we deserve, but he did not. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And if you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ by faith, then His sacrifice will be applied to you and God will declare you to be righteous. He will justify you. He will forgive your sin. And He will save you. Father, do that today. Do that here, Father. Do that around the world as Your people have gathered together and Your Word is being proclaimed. Draw Your people to Yourself. We pray, Father, that You would call men and women to recognize their sin, their imperfection, And having, Father, recognized that, then by Your Spirit, may they be convicted and may they be granted the gift of repentance and faith. May they see the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. And may, Father, they be added to the church. Even this day, Father, we ask, Build your church. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.